we come to Revelation 10, verses 1 through 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again preach, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, during the awful judgment of the seals and the trumpets. What are your people to do? This part of Revelation, I'm going to take a couple of minutes to repeat something from last week. Uh, I received call after call after call this week saying, that helped so much. Would you please do it again? So this is, this is sort of a repeat for just about two and a half minutes. This part of Revelation revolves around three cycles of seven. Now we've looked at the seven seals, the seals that had sealed the scroll. Jesus opened. We've seen those. Last week we began to look at this scene where the seven trumpets were blown. When we finish with the trumpets, we'll see the third and final cycle. We'll see seven angels with seven bowls of severe, severe judgment. Now the way to look at these seals and the trumpets and the bowls is not to look at them as happening in consecutive order. It's not that the seals happened in, say, the early church, and then the trumpets happened in the Middle Ages, and then the bowls will happen at 
just before Jesus returns. No, not at all. That's the wrong way to look. The seals and the trumpets and bowls look at all the history, all of them, all three of those, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, look at the same thing. They look at the, the period of time. We call it the Messianic age between Jesus' ascension and his return. They just look at this with different emphases. They look at this from a different angle. Sometimes when you're looking at a certain geographical location on the earth, you will have a basic picture at, of that area thrown up on your computer screen. We've all done this, put a search for an area, and we looked at it in detail. Well, then you add to that basic picture an overlay that adds the rivers and all the lakes in that same place. And then you add another overlay. You add to that picture an overlay showing the interstate highways and the state roads. Then on top of that map, you have another overlay that is topographical. Now the overlays do not contradict each other. Each overlay adds a different emphasis to the total map. How, that's how the seals, trumpets, and bowls relate to one another. They depict what is happening between the ascension of Christ and return of Christ. It's simply that the trumpets overlay the seals and the bowls will overlay the trumpets and the seals. Now, after the sixth trumpet, we've come this morning, the sixth trumpet's blown. We saw that last week. And there's an interlude before the seventh trumpet. You, you expect after that sixth trumpet to, okay, it's time for the seventh trumpet. That's not what happens. There's an interlude. Well, that, was, that is exactly what happened between the sixth and the seventh seals. We got to the end of the sixth seal and we expected the seventh seal. And that's not what happened. There was an interlude. It was in, you want to read it when you go home today. It was in, it was in Revelation chapter seven. And you see this beautiful interlude that takes place. Now, both interludes, the one between the sixth and the seventh seal and the one between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, they address the same people. It's like Jesus stops and addresses the church. In the interlude, that happened in between the sixth and seventh seal, you have this glorious picture. God says, wait. He, to these angels of judgment, he says, wait. Wait until I seal. Wait until I put my seal on my people on earth. And that seal was a seal of blessing. That's, that seal was a seal of ownership. We're owned by him. It was a seal of protection in time of, of great trouble. God was assuring his people in that seventh chapter of Revelation of their security. That's what he said to us in that seventh chapter. Think about in John's day with rulers like Nero. I mean, he had, he had his Putin. He had his uh, Hitler in Nero. In Diocletian, he, 
there were great numbers of Christians being martyred. And evil seemed to be in ascendancy. And he stops with all these judgments and all this evil that was taking place. And he says, you're sealed. And the second part of the seventh chapter shows the saints in glory. Even if they're martyred, shows the saints in glory with Christ reigning with him. In chapter 10, we've come to another interlude. And he addresses the church. It's between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And again, he's addressing the church. He's addressing the people of God, just like he did in the seventh chapter. In this interlude, Jesus is not just saying we're sealed and saying you're secure. He's telling us, he's telling his people, his church, what we should be doing during all of these upheavals, during the times of war and famine and hurt and pain, judgment. The first interlude was about their security. This second interlude is about our duty, about what Christ has called us to do in the midst of all this. Remember, as we talked about the demonic, you know, demonic times that are right here in the 21st century. What are we to do? We're going to answer that question this morning. Jesus answers it for us in Revelation 10. We're going to ask three questions. By, this, by the way, this message this morning, uh, I relied greatly on an old friend of mine, Eric, Dr. Eric Alexander, who is retired and he's hurting right now. He's a pastor in Scotland, was pastor in Glasgow, but well-known, had a huge international ministry. And I heard him preach on Revelation 10, and I'm relying on that this morning. So uh, if you think, you know, I've read that somewhere before. Know this? I got it from Eric Alexander. You know, there's a story about uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great pastor of London, in the early 20th century, last part of the 19th century. Uh, the, at that time, the most famous preacher in the world. Uh, and he had a school for ministers, a seminary. And one of the students preached a, a sermon um, like we'll do in seminary, and it's graded, it's judged. And he had preached, and uh, the, several of the teachers said, we've heard that sermon before. And said, you know, and they thought about it and thought about it. And they said, we, Dr. Spurgeon preached that message. And so they went to Spurgeon and said, we have a student here that we think is guilty of plagiarizing. He said, I, I, we think he preached your sermon. So Spurgeon had, with the teachers, had this student come in. And he said, sir, said, we're... Did you get that message? Where did you find that message? And he said, from Matthew Henry, Matthew's Henry's commentaries. And Spurgeon laughed and he said, that's exactly where I got it too. <laughs> so, we're going to ask three questions. We're really going to ask four questions. The first three questions are, 
Where is John in this chapter? That's important. Who is this angel? And what is the little scroll? Well, where is John? John has been in heaven. Remember in chapter 4, he's told to come up and enter the door. And he sees the glory of heaven and God on his throne. He sees the lamb take the great scroll and all of heaven break out and worship like he had never seen or like he had never heard. He saw the lamb break the seven seals of the scroll. He saw that great angel bring that censer and take the prayers of the saints and throw it down on the earth. All of this while he was there in glory. After this, he sees the first six angels blow their trumpets. And he sees it from the perspective of heaven. However, and this is more important than you think. With verse 1, chapter 10, his location changes. Look at it. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, his face like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. John is on earth. He sees the angel coming down. His perspective has been changed. I believe this is important because on earth, he's in the midst of all that's taking place. He's in the midst of what's happened with those seals. He's in the midst of what's happening with those trumpets. He's a Christian in the midst of what is taking place with the seals and trumpets, just like us. As we move through this, through this message, that will become more and more significant. So where is John in this vision? On earth. Who's this angel? You know, when we first see it, we're tempted to think this angel is Jesus. And there's a reason to think that. I don't think this angel is Jesus. But he's a mighty angel. He's colossal. He's wrapped in a cloud. How did Jesus ascend to heaven? In a cloud. When he returns, he, he'll be returning in the clouds. The clouds always represent glory. There's a rainbow over his head. A rainbow is a sign of God's covenant, his promise. His face is like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. His voice is like the roar of a lion. We're reminded that Jesus is the lion of Judah. However, I don't think this person is Jesus. Whenever Jesus appears in Revelation, he's always worshipped. Always no worship comes with this angel. And John did not fall to the ground in fear as he did when he saw Jesus in chapter 1. And then there's this voice. When the angel called out, there were seven thunders. And John was about to write the seven thunders, about the seven thunders. But there came a loud voice from heaven, not from the angel, that says, Oh, no, 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 John, don't write about the thunders. That's sealed up. You seal that up. Put a seal on that part. You can't speak of that. You can't write of that. That was the voice of Jesus. That's the command from the throne. The angel was simply a colossus. He was a great archangel. He swears by the creator of heaven and earth and the sea that there would be no more delay and that the seventh trumpet would be blown and the mysteries of God 
would be fulfilled. Where was John? On earth. Who was the angel? Just a colossal, colossal, huge angel. What was the little scroll? This is not a huge scroll, like the huge scroll that Jesus took from the Father. It was a little scroll. It was like, here, here's a book, and then I, I can take a little booklet. Maybe it has 30 pages, and you say, well, that's a book. This is a booklet. This is a small scroll. You think about how that looked. Everything about this angel was huge, was colossal. He put one foot on the sea and another on the land. What would you expect him to be holding? You expect him to be holding a great sword, maybe a great scepter, an orb. No, he has a little scroll. And a voice from heaven tells John, go take the booklet from the angel. He goes to get the booklet. And the angel hands it to him and he says, John, eat this. Eat this. Ingest this. He said, it'll be sweet in your mouth, but it'll be bitter in your stomach. Now this scene is related directly to the call of Ezekiel. When John was writing this, when John was seeing this vision, he said, I know about this. This happens in Ezekiel. God tells Ezekiel to eat the book. I want to go back there. I want us to look at it because it pertains so much to this passage. Uh, Ezekiel, look at Ezekiel 2, 1 on your scripture sheet. And he said to me, son of man, now this is God speaking to Ezekiel. And it's called, the, the title of this in Ezekiel is the call of Ezekiel. God was telling Ezekiel what to do. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet. And I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I sent you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for their rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you. And you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks. For they are a rebellious house, and you will speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear. For they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that, rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now skip down to chapter 3, verse 1. And he said to me, son of man, eat Whatever you find here, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now, as I said, 
You've already seen it. This is a record of God calling Ezekiel to be a prophet to Israel, to speak God's word to Israel, to go say, thus saith the Lord. God gives him a book, says, eat it. After he eats it, he says, now go preach. That's exactly what happens in Revelation 10. Like Ezekiel, John is receiving the word of God and is told to go preach it. The last verse, we'll see it. He's he's told to go preach. Now, this is the apostle John. He's already been commissioned. He was commissioned when you read the Gospels. You read about the disciples being commissioned. To wait on the Holy Spirit, to take the gospel to the earth, but to wait on the Holy Spirit to come. And then go forth in power to preach. Now what's happening here? Remember John's on earth? He's in the midst of this. He, he's a symbol. He represents the church. This is a picture of Jesus reminding the church in the middle of all this upheaval, in the middle of the seals and the trumpets, all the judgments, the drought, the famine, the wars, the demonic, he's reminding the church, preach the word, eat the scroll. Well, what is the scroll? I'm going to run through it very quickly. It has about seven or eight points, but it will be over in three or four minutes. The scroll, of course, is the word of God. It came down from heaven. doesn't come up from there. It came down from heaven. Secondly, it has universal authority. The angel with the scroll plants one foot in the sea and his other on the land, spans the earth. Three, it has power as the thunderous voice of God. It's the roar of the line of Judah. Fourthly, it's open. He had a little scroll in his hand, an open scroll in his hand. The scroll in chapter 5 that the Lamb took from the Father, that was sealed. This is not sealed. This is wide open. Why is it open? Because the Holy Spirit opens the Word of God for us. This morning, I pray, oh, I pray, That you're not hearing John Sartell. I'm praying that you're hearing the Holy Spirit. That's what all preaching is. As great a preacher as Paul was. He said to the Corinthians, my preaching was not a demonstration of my eloquence. It wasn't a demonstration of my superior theological knowledge. It was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what all true preaching must be. The Holy Spirit opens the word for us. It tells us all we need to know, but not everything. Here in the Word, we have God's details of salvation. We have the cross. We have the revelation that we're sinners. We have the cross that Jesus died for our sins. We have the resurrection. But remember the seven thunders? God says, seal that up. I'm not going to talk to you about those. That's what he says. It's sealed up. His word tells us everything we need to know, but it doesn't tell us everything. We sing in the country, in the mountains, we used to sing a hymn, we'll understand it all by and by. No, we won't, (laughs) even when we're home in glory, because he's God and we're not. 
Oh, the best part? It will be plain. The word of God will be plain to our understanding. A child can understand. Jesus loves me. This I know. For what? For the Bible tells me so. But there will always be a mystery. There will always be a depth. We never will be able to measure it all. Sixthly, it must be consumed. It must be digested into our being before it can be proclaimed. You know, before you can teach the word, before you can speak the word, before you can live the word, you've got to ingest it. You've got to know the word. It's got to be in your life. And that's what the church must be doing, constantly, consistently consuming the word. What always happens as a church moves away from God's word, what always happens they lose their power. They're giving up the truth. They stop being the church of God. Sometimes I've heard people say, well, you know, I know, I know what the Bible says. You know, I've been studying it now for 50 years. Oh, really? 50 years you have. This is God speaking. The, the, you, you know, what scientist walks around today saying, oh, we know the, 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 we, the scientists today will say, we've just scratched the surface of the universe. No. Well, this God that made the universe, you think that you can fathom him by reading his word ten times? through, cover to cover, 20 times, 100 times. Home in glory. We may have his whole word memorized and we won't be able to fathom it. In other words, there's always more there to ingest. There's always more. I will tell you a sermon that I've preached 25 times. And I will tell you that the next time I prepare it, I'll see something that I did not see previously. Well, after we ingest it, seventhly, it must not be kept inside. He called his church to proclaim the word. Look at verse 11. And I was told, you must again preach, prophesy. That's what that word means, about many peoples and nations and languages. Now, maybe at this point you're saying, well, John... You're preaching to yourself this morning. I'm glad you're preaching this message for it pertains to you, John, not to us. Well, are you an elder in the church of Jesus Christ, a deacon in the church of Jesus Christ? Are you a member of the church of Jesus Christ? Then this same Bible tells you that you're responsible to make sure that what is coming from this pulpit is the word of God. That's your responsibility. It's not just my responsibility. It's not just the elders' responsibility, the deacon. It's all of our responsibility. And to know that, you must know. If, if, to recognize error in the pulpit means you've got to know what Scripture says. But take that song down. What does it mean to preach? He's not just saying, no, you've got to be behind the pulpit. And that's He's talking to the church. And the church is what? To be salt and light out in the world. How can we be salt and light? 
only in the power of his word. How can you lead your family? Husbands, fathers, wives, mothers. How can you lead your family in the ways of God? How can you lead your family through Scripture? If you don't know Scripture, if you don't understand Scripture, if you don't ingest it, you cannot possibly teach your home the Word of God unless you have ingested the Word of God. But once you've ingested it, really it's like trying to come home from Destin. You ever tried to come home from Destin, spending a week on the beach, and not bring home sand? Can't do it. You're going to bring home sand. You're going to be finding sand in your suitcase, your socks, your shoes, your toes, whatever, for weeks and weeks. Well, it's like that. If you ingest God's Word, it's impossible to keep it on the inside. Jeremiah walked into his house one day, and he was proclaiming to a group of people as harsh and as hard as our culture around us. And he was sick of it. He was just getting beat to death. And he walked in, and he said, I'm not doing it again. I'm not going out there and tell those people anything else. I'm not preaching anymore. I'm not going to tell them about God's word. And you know what the very next word he wrote was? But his word was in my heart like a burning fire, and I could not keep silent. That's what Jeremiah said. His word is inside me. You can't hold it on the inside. You've got to live it. Eighthly, it will be sweet to your taste. That we've read about that this morning. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now get this. How important is money to you? How important is it? I asked one of our leaders coming in this week. I love asking. Ms. Scott says, well, did you make any money this week? And he's, yeah, I, I made made some money. It's, it's important to make money. Money's important. But look at this. The tenth verse there. More the word of God, more to be desired are they than gold. Now I've got a question for you. Do you love money? Do you love wealth? Do you love material things more than you do God's word? Or do you love God's word? Remember at the end of our prayer this morning, in our confession this morning, we said, teach us, Father, that you cannot be separated from your word, that to love you means to love your word. You can't love Christ. You can't love God unless you love his word. You can't be separated from it. Well, you say, what about that bitter part? That's easy. He says, uh, we, we read that it's a message of lamentation and mourning and woe. Sometimes the Word of God speaks hard words. And we just can't speak the easy words. There's a huge part of the evangelical church today that wants to speak the easy words. They don't want to say the hard words. 
Andrew Bonar was a great hymn writer from Scotland. We've sung some of his hymns. He was also a minister in the Church of Scotland. And he had a good friend, and Bonar was well known in the Church of Scotland. But he had a close friend, Robert Murray McShane, who was even more well known all across, not just Scotland, but all across England and Europe. And Bonar said to McShane one day, he said, Robert, I preached on hell today. And Robert McShane said, Andrew, did it pain you to do it? Did it pain you to do it? If it doesn't pain you to do it, folks, don't preach it. Don't say it. Painful words in God's word. Well, in this interlude before the seventh trumpet, Jesus is calling his church to be ever faithful. And isn't this a simple message? Isn't it a great message? In the midst of all the trouble, in the midst of this mess, in the midst of the trumpets, in the midst of the seals, as all this is breaking out, Jesus pulls these churches together. He takes it. He said, now we're going to have an interlude here. We're going to have a break. Take my word. Read it. Ingest it. And then go speak it. Go live it to the world. That's what he is saying. When I was writing this, I thought about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As he carried God's word to Hitler's Germany. He came to the United States actually. Escaping from Germany. But it was too safe. And he went home faithfully to preach God's word. Bonhoeffer said this. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Now, I want to ask you a personal question. We've answered three questions. Now I'm going to ask a fourth question. Is this what we're doing? As a husband, wife, father, mother, grandfather, grandmother, leader in the church, member of the church, are you ingesting, are we ingesting the word of God? And living and speaking it to the world around us, to our children, to our grandchildren, to our neighbors, to the city. People, this is a direct command from Christ. How valuable, here's the last question, how valuable is the word of God to you? In 1857, John Patton of Scotland went to the New Hebrides in the South Sea to preach and live out the Word of God. You ought to get, you know, if, you, if you're interested in history, if you like reading history, get a biography of John Patton. It's one of the most exciting biographies that you'll ever, ever read. It's an unbelievable biography. There's no way. He went to the New Hebrides and the South Seas to preach and live out the Word of God. There's no way to communicate to you the depravity that he encountered in those islands. The tribes were constantly at war. That's how they got their food. They were cannibals. They went out and just killed other people, other tribes, and they had food for a while. 
cannibalism, widow sacrifice, infanticide, ancestor worship. When he arrived, he was regarded with utter hatred by the tribes. Several of his fellow missionaries were killed and devoured by the cannibals. His wife and child, shortly after they arrived, she gave birth to the first child, and the child and his wife died in just a few weeks. But he wouldn't give up the calling that he had from Christ to come and preach. He remarried. He traveled the world bringing the forces of Christ to bear on the evil of those islands, bringing additional missionaries, bringing additional funds. Through the preaching, through his preaching and prayers, an individual was saved, another individual was saved, another individual was saved, another individual met Christ. And then the chief met Christ. And then the chief of a neighboring tribe met Christ. And those islands were changed. He did what, John, what, what Jesus told John to do in Revelation 10. He ingested the word. And he very simply lived it out. And he preached it. In one of the most depraved places on the face of the planet. Remember the question, how valuable is the word of God to you? Well, Patton translated the New Testament into the language of those islanders. But to publish it, to print it, was expensive. And this was at the end of the world. I mean, the New Hebrides and the South Pacific. Well, those natives that had become Christians... They so wanted the word. They so wanted the New Testament that they worked for 15 years. Their main way of making money was harvesting something called arrowroot. It's a thickener, a food thickener. And for 15 years, they worked away. And they paid for it. They paid for the New Testament so that they could have it in their own language and read it. Fifteen years of labor. That's how much they loved God's Word. Colson once remarked that about a new barbarianism that our culture, and he was prophesying about what was going to happen, And how we were going to sink into a new barbarianism. What brought those cannibals out of that barbaric, awful way they were living? The Word of God, the New Testament. People, the only thing that will save this nation is the Word of God. The only thing. The last question, what other institution besides the church has been charged with God to bring his word to the people, to the culture? There's not another. 
Hollywood doesn't have that commission. The arts does not have that commission. The government does not have that commission. Wall Street doesn't have that. The church alone holds the word of God. The question is how much we love it. Do we love the word of God first and foremost and realize what will happen if that word is not preached and lived? Amen. Our hymn is number 468. My faith has found a resting place.